When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Lawrence O'Donnell is a familiar figure to anybody who watches MSNBC. His show, The Last Word, has been a staple in the MSNBC lineup for the better part of a decade. He brings to his work on TV a really varied career that took him through politics and Hollywood, first as the staff director of some major Senate committees when he worked for Senator Pat Moynihan, and then as a producer and writer and occasional actor in The West Wing. Lawrence recently released a book called Playing With Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. And 1968 truly was a transformational year for so many reasons. Lawrence came by the Institute of Politics to talk about his book, but I sat down and took the opportunity to speak with him about his interesting life and career and the tumultuous politics we're living through today. Lawrence O'Donnell, welcome here and welcome to the University of Chicago, to the Institute of Politics. We're we're happy to have you. It's very intimidating for me to be here. Um, oh, yeah. I don't yeah, see because, you because I've, but... because I've, I've written a book where if you were doing the movie of it, the location you would use the mm. most is Chicago. Yes. Okay. So I'm desperately afraid that someone's going to tell me, you got the street wrong where Dick Gregory was arrested <laughs> or something like that. And so if I can survive 24 hours in Chicago without being corrected too many times, Well, the I'll good news happy. for you is that most of the people who could make those corrections <laughs> probably don't remember. Yeah. So uh, you, I think you'll be all right. I, 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 I've, I've read those chapters mm-hmm. in the main I think you did a very good job of of summarizing that. You know, I came here to the University of Chicago as a student in 1972 in part because I'd lived through 68 as a kid. I was intensely interested and I thought, wow, what an interesting political town. You know, Mayor Daley, yeah. the last of the big city machines, uh, the convention just four years earlier. So I read this voraciously. And were you watching that convention unfold on TV the way I was? I was a kid in high school sitting on the floor of our living room watching all these events. And so when I was writing it as a so-called history, uh, a lot of it is eyewitness stuff. I I remember Mayor Daley yelling at Abe Ribicoff. I remember it with my own memory. Now, you you should know that that, uh, like Bill Daley, if you talk to him uh, and some others, maintain that he didn't say the things that he was alleged to have <laughs> right. said. Uh, they also claim that Ribicoff, they were that Daly was particularly peeved at Ribicoff because he had a fundraiser for him the night before mm-hmm. and handed him a bag full of cash mm-hmm. in the fine Chicago tradition. Right. And so, which, by the way, was totally legal then. Yes, uh, people talk about all oh, the the good old days, the good old days before campaign finance, when literally it was bags of cash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now it's just bags of dark money. Yes, exactly. So, listen, I want to talk to you about this book, uh, and 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 we'll we will because I it's great, and I and I do think '68 was probably the most impactful year in American history in my lifetime. Yeah, uh, yeah, me too, and it, and and the most dramatic, and really, you know, coming off uh, drama writing for seven years at the West Wing for NBC, when I was thinking about a book, I began simply by looking for the most dramatic story that I would know how to tell. So there may be more dramatic stories in American politics, but in terms of my own experience, uh, I have experienced and witnessed nothing more dramatic than what we watched in 1968, including, you know, all my years of, of working in Washington in the real thing. Yeah. Uh, it was never as dramatic as what I saw there. So you've touched on a few things that we need to talk about because uh, I want to talk about Lawrence O'Donnell be- before we talk about Bobby Kennedy and mm-hmm. 
Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, that seems appropriate. Yeah, that, that I would come first before exactly. those guys. Yeah. Uh, well, I was told that would be right, the right way to do it. <laughs> right. Plus, that's how we roll here. Right. So uh, you you come from Boston. Yeah. From Dorchester. From Dorchester. Yeah. And yeah. we, uh, uh, you know, I feel a kinship. I grew up in New York, but I've been in Chicago for forty five years. And sort of the ethnic neighborhoods of Chicago are very reminiscent to me. But talk to me about Dorchester. And well, it's a you know it's a there's a very similar feel here in those uh, what were then just virtually completely Irish Catholic uh, working class neighborhoods. You know, all the fathers had jobs and they were in the police department and the fire department. My father started off as a cop and uh, and then he went to law school, college and law school nights because he hadn't gone to college and ended up as a lawyer. Uh, but that was very unusual in yeah. that neighborhood. There were no doctors. There were no, you know... Uh, executives of any kind. It was that kind of place. Uh, and it was a place where, you know, guys like uh, Mayor Daly in, in the 1960s would have been very comfortable, would oh, sure. have identified immediately. Everybody uh, there would have loved him and uh, and actually had a very good feeling for him up until watching the 1968 convention. And then that's the kind of neighborhood that just split. You know, there was a certain number of people who were just very strongly on the side of Daly's response to what went on in Chicago and another section of the community that was much more sympathetic to the protesters, that sort of thing. Uh, and that that's, 1968 is when uh, that, that part of our politics uh, began evolving into where it is now. And, 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 and it's kind of the heart and soul of where these so-called culture wars take place. You, uh, yeah, you know, when you talk about the similarity, I remember about uh, you and... Um, uh, the St. Brendan's Parish. Ah, yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, you ask people yeah. in this town, even to this day in some of these neighborhoods where they're from, and they'll name the, par- they'll, exactly. they'll name the parish right. that right. they're from. I could not have told you uh, what the uh, congressional district was, or I could not have told you anything about it, uh, what ward it was. I didn't know that. Parish. I'm, I'm from St. Brendan's. Where are you from? I'm from St. Agatha's. You know. So you 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 mentioned that uh, your father became a, a lawyer, went to college, became a lawyer while he was a, a cop, and that was unusual. Probably it was also unusual for people to go from your neighborhood to Harvard. I mean, Harvard oh, was, was just uh, a stone's throw away, but yeah. but like a a whole world away yeah. from where yeah, you grew it up. was. It's the other end of the subway line for us, and it was nothing but. Uh, the punchline of a joke, a friend of mine, Tom Broderick, used to say, uh, my father works at Harvard Station, uh, <laughs> which was absolutely true. His father made change for tokens at Harvard Station in, in Cambridge. And um, my mother's from Cambridge, but she's it's North Cambridge. It's, it's way beyond uh, the Harvard campus. And so I'd never actually seen the Harvard campus until I went there as a freshman. We used to take the subway. Uh, into I'm gonna, it's going to be Boston accent now if we're talking about this. That's but I used to take the subway into into Harvard Square, and then we'd get the trolley that went up to North Cambridge, and it, and the trolley would come out uh, from underground at a place past. Um, the campus. I, I now know that it was coming out in an area that was near the law school, but I wasn't looking out the window, and I. Li- so it really was a world away, and it's it's. Um, so how'd you how'd you end up there? I did my homework. I did. I I had a trouble in I high school. I was a wise guy in high school, and I got yeah. kicked out of a couple of high schools. But I ended up finally for the last uh, two and a half years at a uh, at a high school where I promised my father I would uh, I'd really get serious, and I did get serious. And so um, that's it. I mean, I basically I did my homework, and I and I I did okay uh, on the SATs and stuff. And how was the adjustment when you went there? Um. It was, it wasn't something I was terribly conscious of. It's something when I look back on it, I, I understand it better. I'll tell you, it is one of those things that, and I, you can't say this about a lot of Hollywood movies, but it is very accurately captured in Goodwill Hunting. The mm-hmm. and that is my neighborhood. That's the story of a kid from my neighborhood going to Harvard College, and it is, it it, it is what's most the the, the part you really feel is that it completely changes everyone around you in your neighborhood. 
I was completely and instantaneously accepted by all of my friends and roommates at Harvard, some of whom went to very fancy, uh, you know, private schools and boarding schools. Most of my friends at Harvard went to uh, public schools. Two-thirds of the kids at Harvard are from public schools and are on financial aid. Mm -hmm. So I, most of the kids there are people who I identified with. But in the neighborhood. Um, but in the neighborhood, it changed everything. It yeah. was It was so strange it was it was as if i had instant it's like i'd become an astronaut it was the strangest thing that i could possibly say and someone because in you know for the kids i knew the question was not where are you going to college the first question the, the question was basically what are you going to do on, on on high school graduation because it included maybe go in the army uh you know maybe get a job at the phone company uh maybe go to college uh, and so once you said something about college, you know, then they'd say, where are you going to go to college? And, you know, for the first time in the history of our neighborhood, the answer was Harvard. And <laughs> I felt like I was on another planet and I could see it. I could see it in that second. I could see it. I could see this thing happen in your eye where Dick Daly no longer, who's a good friend of mine, <laughs> my elementary school classmate of mine, no, could no longer look at me the same way. Because mm -hmm. I, as in his mind, I had somehow left. That really is good, good I had, will, right? Yeah. I'd left their understanding of the universe, and, and I you, and I had and I knew I was going to have to make an effort to try to make them understand that I had not left their universe, but they were they were as right about that perception as I had wished they were wrong, because it really is another universe. Yeah, when you finished. Though people think of Harvard as a springboard to riches and 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 glittering professional careers, you became a school teacher in Boston. Yeah, I I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I this is why I am utterly useless at career advice because <laughs> because first of all, I didn't go to graduate school, so right away you don't know what you know. You're not planning your career very well, right? And so um, so everything that's happened in my so-called career is a complete accident, uh, including uh, growing out of the first thing I did. Uh, but but what I did to kind Although, of let me say that that may be the best career advice, which is don't make a thirty-year plan. You know, yeah. I find I, I must say I find it very risky, and I flirted with utter bankruptcy uh, many times, and so I. I don't recommend it. I kind of, I recommend dental school. You know, I really don't recommend gambling. I'm sure it. you would have been much happier if you had <laughs> yeah. done that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I did become a, a substitute teacher in the Boston public school system, which was a fantastic experience. And that was my income. And, uh, and I moved around through all the different schools, elementary, high school, middle school, everything. And then I got assigned to one of the better, a permanent, so it was a great, it's a great phrase. I was a permanent substitute <laughs> at Latin Academy, which is the, I guess you could call it the second best high school in, uh, in public high school in Boston, one of the oldest ones. And, and that was a really great uh, few years of, of doing that. In the meantime, uh, my father comes along one night and says to me, um, you know, you really should take a look at this case I have in the office now. It was a civil rights case. It was the first time he ever had a civil rights case. And it was the story of two Boston police officers who shot and killed uh, a black man in Roxbury in the black neighborhood of Boston, where my father is from. He's from that neighborhood uh, back when it was an Irish neighborhood. And, and here he was, uh, pioneering um, a, a civil rights lawsuit against his old police department, the Boston Police Department, uh, for uh, killing this man and for covering up uh, the killing of this man the way they did it. And he said, you know, you should come in the office and take a look at this. Uh, you should write a book about it. Now, this is a very odd thing because there's nothing about me that is a writer. Um, I it's such an odd suggestion, you know, and I, I, it had that kind of rhetorical sound of someone should write a book about it, you know, which I understand. And, and I had nothing to do. And I went in the office the next day and my brother, Michael, who was uh, working there as his partner, uh, handed me the police file, all the police reports. And it was about 45 pages of police reports. And I just sat at a table and turned the pages of these police reports sequentially. And it was the most dramatic possible story you could ever read in this dry and in many ways fraudulent language of these police reports and it was all sitting there in front of me and I thought 
yeah, I'll write a book about this, which was nutty because <laughs> I didn't know how to write and I was afraid of writing and I was afraid of taking courses in college that required writing papers and all that. Uh, but I did sit down and do it. And, and seven years later, there was a book and suddenly I was a writer and then there's been a series of accidents right. since then. Let me ask you about this because I was fascinated by this whole story. First of all, it it could not have sat well in the old neighborhood that your that your father had taken on this case, at least with with some folks. And you yourself were were kind of abducted and <laughs> right. beaten by police right. police officers yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah. in 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 retaliation for the yeah. fact that he took this yeah, case the, on some of the police some of the cops who were involved in the in the in the killing were trying to scare him off the case and so they kind of came after me one night and beat me up a little bit and arrested me and for disorderly conduct thinking that would that would scare him off and of course it only you know made him go after them much harder no you see so this I'm glad you asked that question because these these neighborhoods and these cultures are always multidimensional and more complex than they look from the outside. And so it looks like a police neighborhood where, you know, there's a lot of cops who lived in my neighborhood. And, of course, they're all going to resent, you know, that uh, Larry O'Donnell, my father, is doing this. Uh, but... Uh, before he does this, he has spent many years defending Boston cops in legal trouble for all sorts of stuff. There was a time when he defended uh, in a criminal investigation an entire police department in Massachusetts, you know, a small department that was being investigated for corruption. And so, so he, up to this point, had always been somebody that that world admired. And he was actually one of that world's success stories. You know, here's that that guy. I used to work with him. I used to be on a beat with him. And look at him now. He's a lawyer. And, and, and so he was admired by these people who he was now, uh, whose institution he was now taking on. There's another dimension of this, uh, especially among uh, the, the urban Irish, which is... Um, there are many things they uh, can hate you for. There's ma or many things they can admire you for. But there's almost nothing they admire you for more than going after their boss <laughs> and, than saying, you know, than really taking it to the boss because they all think they're smarter than their boss. They all think their boss is doing a bad job. And so the truth of it is the Boston police commissioner was through, for, for most cops during most of those times, uh, a figure of ridicule to them anyway in their locker rooms. And so when you're kind of taking on that structure, um, it's not, you, you don't get the unanimous disapproval of cops. And, and there was also a generational thing. The guys involved in this were the younger cops. They were younger and kind of wilder cops, the older cops of my father's generation, many of whom were still on the force when he was doing this. Uh, all thought that those younger guys were crazy. And they all were glad to see somebody coming in and pushing them around and straightening them out. Race must have played, I mean, the the the, the man who was killed, Mr. Bowden, yeah. was, was black. Yeah. And race, I mean, you know, you came up in that period in the 70s, 60s, 70s, Louise Day Hicks. Yeah. Uh, who was a, a major figure in Boston politics and was, uh, you know, just a flat-out racist yeah. uh, and had quite a following there and so on. So race complicated that picture, I'm sure. Yeah, look, uh, Boston was a completely racist place at the time. Just, you know, it was as racist as Alabama. And the language uh, that I grew up hearing was exactly the same language that you would have heard in segregated Alabama. And Boston was flawlessly segregated uh, in the 1960s uh, when I was a kid. I mean, residentially, it was flawlessly seg segregated. There wasn't a single crack in those walls. Uh, the educational system was flawlessly segregated. Public schools were completely segregated, and they ultimately ended up getting a federal court you know, desegregation order, which then really exposed the feelings of Boston because you saw black kids uh, being bussed into my kind of neighborhood uh, getting and their buses were getting stoned and eggs thrown at their car. And oh, and oh, by the way, you know, the incumbent uh, senior senator at the time, Ted Kennedy, 
uh, he he could not travel right. in most areas of Boston at the time. And if he did, his car would get stoned. Because he supported busing. Yeah, because he supported the integration of the schools. Uh, his, they were throwing eggs at his car everywhere he went. You know, and so when people kind of look back at the Teddy Kennedy Senate career and pretend uh, that it was some kind of love fest, you know, with, with the Massachusetts voter and the Boston voter, uh, they're missing uh, decades of incredible uh, stress that, that he went through uh, because of the positions he held. What did you learn from watching your dad? I mean, how, what, how did you feel about what he was doing and uh, oh, what I was, did it teach you? Uh, I was hugely admiring of it right away. And, and, and I, uh, you know, I, 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 was, um, I was all for it. You know, he, he'd always been um, very aware of the poison of the racism that we were surrounded by and always did everything he could to lean against it. And, uh, and I remember being in a friend's uh, kitchen when I was a, a little kid, and his father was a Boston cop, and and I heard him very casually use the N word uh, over there on the other side of the room, just describing to his wife uh, an arrest he made uh, the night before, just very casually describing it to his wife, and it was as if I had heard him say the F word or the, the most extreme profanity. Like I didn't know that adults said that in front of kids. I'd heard guys, older guys on the street saying it, but I actually didn't know that adults uh, used that. I thought it was just something that wise guys and, you know, wise guy kids that I knew used. And and I was just stunned by it. And, I, and at the same moment, I realized, ah, oh, that word's never been said in my house. Is it being said in all the other houses and the parents can not only hear it, they say it? I mean, that's how... I think isolated our little bubble was, you know, in our house on that. And that was created uh, by my parents without me even knowing they did. But yeah, I was very, uh, I was really proud of him for doing it. And I knew he was the guy to do it. I knew that one of the reasons these kinds of cases could never be successful in the past, and, and he was successful with it, is that you needed a kind of you know, street smart approach to it and a cop-like approach to it. And it was always being, these kinds of things were always being handled by people who didn't understand cops. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, he, he was the guy to do it. I can do a, a really fast story about this because it's so counterintuitive. He was in jury selection for this case, which, of course, was an all-white jury. It's, it's in Boston. It's an all-white jury. And so uh, you're trying to figure out, you know, uh, where the racism is in the jury pool. And the presumption is it's 80% racist minimum, you know, in, in Boston. So this is going to be difficult. Um, but one woman, uh, you know, tells, tells uh, the judge that her uh, husband is a cop. And he's a Revere police officer. Revere is the next town mm -hmm. uh, from Boston, smaller town beside Boston. Um, and so I just assume, you know, my father's going to challenge her. Uh, the prosecutors I and mean, the other, the other, the, the uh, lawyers defending the cops are very, very happy that uh, she, her husband's a police officer. And so I'm waiting for the challenge. The challenge doesn't happen. You're in the courtroom? I'm in the courtroom. I'm in the front row in the spectator section. My brother Michael is his co-counsel up at the table. And I, and I know Michael's expecting the challenge too. And he doesn't challenge her. And she is seated as a juror. And then we go to a recess. And I jump out of my seat. And I can't believe what just happened. And I run up to my father. And Michael's leaning in there too. And we both say, why did you let her get on the jury? Are you nuts? What are you thinking? He says, uh... No one, no one hates Boston cops more than Revere cops. <laughs> and no huh. one knows how bad cops can be better than their wives. Hmm. She was with them all the way. She, you know, and, and so that's the kind of thing. That's the kind of lawyer you needed in this kind of case. Just to put a button on this story, uh, you wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times, probably the Biggest piece you published uh, right. bef before you uh, 
you wrote this book, and you said, without a reliable mechanism to cope with the problem of unjustified killings by police, by the police, widespread abuse of what police rulebooks call deadly force goes on unchecked. Police departments, prosecutors, the courts, and perhaps more importantly, the American people have failed to respond to the problem properly and therefore have all but given the police unlimited license to use their deadly force. That was 39 years ago. It was the first thing I ever wrote publicly, and it was the first article the New York Times ever published about police use of deadly force. So how much progress have we made? That sentence holds word for word to this day. Uh, At the same time, we've made a lot of important progress. Uh, Some of the uh, jurisdictions that had the highest uh, shooting rates uh, now have the lowest shooting rates. They've improved tremendously. Uh, And so we have... Uh, certain departments, New York City has improved just uh, incredibly on this, on this, uh, in in those decades. Boston has improved uh, very much, uh, and there's a whole world of progressive police administrator out there in places like Boston, uh, and to varying degrees in places like New York and and other jurisdictions. And so, uh, the 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 overall story has improved. However, it has always been an anecdotal phenomenon, meaning uh, there's a wonderful uh, police officer from Chicago, uh, Captain uh, ha- uh, Howard Saffold, I believe is his yeah, name. I, he, knew, I knew Howard. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a great guy. I met him at, in uh, uh, back then, 40 years ago, uh, at a Justice Department conference. Started uh, something called the Afro-American Police. Exactly yeah. right, yeah. And he was on to this subject. And he said to me, and I quoted him in the book at the time, a police officer can do something in uh, a second that sours a community for a generation. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the overall numbers might look better now, especially in certain cities, than they used to look, the problem is that each individual case of this uh, carries gigantic uh, societal ramifications. As in, we've seen. For, and sometimes for decades, as we've seen. And so for me, uh, the issue, the, 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 the real thing that we need is, that we, that we really have to care about, is how are these cases treated after the fact? They're going to happen. There's going to be pilot error. There are mm-hmm. going to be plane crashes. And if you look at the plane crash model, you could not have a better system for aftermath investigation of plane crashes. Mm-hmm. We really have said we need to know but everything. But we don't we really need, have that same we don't protocol. Do that. We don't do that here. And, and look, I, to me, it's not about how much punishment the police officer gets. I think there's a wide range of punishment that is relevant, including possibly just losing your job. They do make mistakes. And, they live, and, and when they make these mistakes— they don't have any any process by which they can actually admit they've made mistakes because for them the way it looks is if i admit i make a, i've made a mistake i am going to be sued for millions of dollars i am going to go to jail i'm going and and you know we we need to find a system that says you know not all of these things are the same this too i mean it's so suffused with race yeah. and uh, we sit here in chicago and we've had terrible problems uh, related to this. And so it's not just how we deal with it on the back end, but also what we do on the front end to try and reduce these kinds of confrontations or the chances of these kinds of confrontations. I have to uh, move on because- By the way, that book, Deadly Force, is going to be reissued in March of this year. I've been trying to get that uh, reissued since its first run uh, in the 1980s, uh, but it's coming back with an updated- and, and and people can go back and find yeah. somewhere a case of deadly force, yes. the, the movie. Yes, the movie, yeah, which was on CBS. That's right. Uh, but uh, what's interesting to me is you never were particularly political. No. And you had a writer's strike, a Hollywood writer's <laughs> strike in 1988, and you needed a job. So you went to work for a guy named Pat Moynihan, yeah. Senator Pat Moynihan, who was running yeah. for re-election. Uh, how did that all come about? And... Uh, what attracted you to that? You know, for uh, uh, other than the paycheck, which may be the, a good enough answer. The paycheck was everything. For about six months, it was my darkest secret that I was working on the Moynihan re-election campaign because, you know, it takes so long to establish yourself as a freelance worker, especially if it's in the arts. You know, so to so for people to believe you are an actor instead of a waiter 
who thinks he's an actor. That takes years and years <laughs> and years, right? Uh, for people to believe you're a writer and it's a real job and you're not available to help them move their sofa 24 hours a day, that takes years and years and years, right? So I'd gotten a few articles out there and I'd gotten a book out there and we turned the book into a TV movie and done all this stuff. And uh, and then the Writers Guild, uh, the Hollywood Writers Guild, uh, by that time I was working in script work in, in, uh, in show business, um, they go on strike for six months. And I knew the Moynihans uh, for years um, and and Mr. and Mrs. Moynihan. And, and Mrs. Moynihan was the campaign manager in 1988. Yeah. How did and, you happen to know them? Uh, it was a Harvard connection. He was, oh, a, he was a professor there mm-hmm. when I was a student. And... Uh, and so uh, they invited me into the re-election campaign, and I absolutely did not want to do this. And in fact, Liz Boynihan says that I still haven't accepted the campaign <laughs> job because I never actually said yes. I, but what I did think was the last hurrah. I mm-hmm. did think, what if I go and hang around there? I wonder if I can. The last hurrah being that uh, a great a classic novel yeah. about... Yeah. Based on Mayor Curley of Boston. Right, and it's it's an Edwin O'Connor novel, and what's wonderful about it is it's told from the perspective of someone who knows nothing about politics. It's the mayor's estranged yes. nephew who is just kind of wandering around, and so he has that eye that the new observer has for these scenes backstage. And I'm thinking, maybe I can get a last hurrah out of this. Maybe as a writer, maybe there's something interesting to observe. And well, so, Moynihan certainly was a cinematic oh my. Uh, figure. Figure, uh, you know, Spencer Tracy played the mayor in yeah. the last hurrah of the movie. Moynihan was made made for that. A, a gigantic character, he, and, he was and the Charles and, Lawton, right? And, and as impressive oh. as he always was to me from a distance of reading his op-ed pieces or or reading his books. Once I started hanging around with him every day, he was so much more impressive backstage. That's the surprising thing. He has, there's so much, he has, when you read the 800 word op-ed piece, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg of what he knows about this subject, you know? And so it was always like a very, you know, a graduate level, you know, Harvard seminar every day of hanging around with him. And, well, you had seven years. You, you, yeah. you attended that seminar longer yeah. than you did Harvard. Yeah. That was the longest thing I'd done at, at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, he, and he's also a guy who understands Tammany Hall. He grew up shining shoes in Times in West, Square. West Side, you know, yeah. uh, his mother was a bartender. Hell's Kitchen. He was yeah. from Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. yeah, so his range of human experience was really quite vast. You mm-hmm. And you, so you went as a kind of uh, I was just the guy. subterranean uh, helper, a you know writer. What? So this. the campaign was the cheapest campaign in America if you if you did it uh, as a as dollars spent per vote, right? Because yeah. spent about $3 million to get elected in New York, New York State. State yeah. And he wins, you know, 68% of the vote. Mrs. Moynihan is the campaign manager, and I am the other guy. And it, and there's no one else there. There's someone who's doing fundraising, and that's it. So you were campaign. an all-purpose kind of— At a certain point, about, oh— I don't know, three months in, I was reading the paper and I saw this title in an article about the Dukakis campaign, director of communications. And I went, I'm the director of communications. <laughs> and Liz went, yeah, okay. And, uh, so, so, uh, but, but you went on to be the staff director well, to my of shock, two Senate committees, yeah, including the Senate Finance Well, committee. yeah, so, so to my surprise, the day after election day, uh, 1988, Senator Moynihan takes me to lunch and says, what do you want? And I think, you know, uh, well, I don't know, maybe I'll have the salad. And he means this in a very I old... You, you were going to say uh, beer or, right. or gin. He, he means this in a very old-fashioned Tammany Hall way. What do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, I didn't go to law school, so I can't have a federal judgeship, you know, and, and I don't want anything. Right. And he says, well, why don't you come into uh, uh, our our staff and, you know, you can be housed in the Chrysler building in our New York City office. You don't have to come to Washington. We'll call you the 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 um, senior advisor and makes up a title on the spot. And you can come to Washington as needed, if needed. And, you know, and, and I know what he's thinking. He's thinking something like he's trying to give me a sort of associate professor job, you know, at a university that's a couple of days a week mm-hmm. so I can continue my writing, but I can pay my rent. And he's just thinking that way, right? And so, and I think that's kind of in, in the spirit of the way it begins, but... He, we end up talking to each other constantly, and I end up going down to Washington all the time, and different things 
erupt out of nowhere, uh, you know, like the confirmation process for Clarence Thomas. And I just rushed down to Washington and spent a few weeks, you know, uh, working our way through all of that. Uh, and and then he's, he gets me in there, you know, full time in the Washington cult. And I end up I'd so deep in it, it's crazy. I end up being the staff director of two committees, Environment and Public Works, and then the Finance Committee, which, as you know, you yes. know raises 99% of the revenue and has control of about almost 65% of the spending. And uh, and that's real governing. This and is not dur- some— and, and this is during the—mostly uh, during the Clinton presidency. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's—so— yeah. You actually were governing. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's the sad thing about the way it works now, David, is I cannot miss my old job because my old job doesn't exist. They don't govern. uh, The committees don't govern the way they did. Everything had to go through committees in those days. So, you know, I mean, in that first year of of, uh, Chairman Moynihan running the Finance Committee, me running the staff of the Finance Committee, uh, we had to do NAFTA. We had to do the World Trade Agreement. We had to do the big budget deal, which was a tax increase, and I'm proud to say the biggest tax increase in history at the time. And because uh, if you're going to do one, you know, and so uh, along you with. You probably touched the abortive health care. Yes, and the, well. the entire Hillary yeah. Clinton health care crusade had to come through that committee. Uh, welfare reform was moving through that committee. Because uh, it has jurisdiction over virtually everything, and um, <clears throat> and so you know it, it it and and it was real. You know, I mean, there was nothing Hillary Clinton was going to be able to do uh, with her bill without coming through this committee. And now it's not the way anything is done in Washington. They yeah. don't even go to the committees. The committees, the the chairman are are puppets, especially on the Republican side. They don't even pretend uh, to function in that committee. And well, I, we saw it on the tax, certainly yeah. the tax bill, a, a, a massive piece of legislation that was whisked through with virtually no... And I can't tell you no. what it was like for me <clears throat> to watch Orrin Hatch as the chairman of that committee, who used to be a very reasonable Republican member of that committee when I was working on that committee, to watch him completely surrender his job as finance chairman uh, to basically to Mitch McConnell, who now functions as the chairman of all the Senate committees. Uh, it, it, it's a horrible process to watch. Um, but, you know, it, it means I, I can't miss my job because they basically abolished uh, my job not, not that long after I left. It just became dysfunctional. And a lot of this, uh, I mean, I think the last time we saw a committee function in a way that we used to recognize it was probably the Affordable Care Act yeah. and the way Max Baucus, for example, took it through the Senate Finance Committee. And, and you know, by the way, when that's happening, the chairman, whoever it is, is getting all sorts of incoming from the right and the left and everything. It's not It's not like it It was smooth. Oh, it, it was well, difficult. You know, I think, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last few days because, and, you know, you sit in the citadel of progressive TV media there on MSNBC. Enlightened, we'd like to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody can choose yeah. their own word. But, um, but uh, you know, you've heard, I'm sure, a lot from people who were absolutely outraged that Democrats uh, kind of folded their cards on this shutdown because they didn't get, they didn't get DACA taken care of. Uh, and I was wondering what you were thinking uh, about uh, when you were watching that as a student of this whole mm-hmm. process. And what do you say to all those progressives who hang on your every word? Well, you know, uh, and I'm sure this amuses you too, um, but there is a certain level of expertise uh, involved in various pursuits that people recognize it. But like for example, you don't hear an awful lot of second guessing of neurologists or neurosurgeons. You don't you don't hear people tweeting tweeting saying I think they're all wrong about you know this particular brain disease or something because people know that they don't know anything about neurology and and neuroscience. Uh, but people because we televise it and we talk about it right. the way they do, people think they know everything about running presidential campaigns. Sports and politics. Right. Now, I have never worked on a presidential campaign. I have never run a presidential campaign. And this may surprise people, but if you were to go to look at my record of public comment about presidential campaigning, I have never once second-guessed a major presidential campaign run by serious professionals like, say, David Axelrod, because 
I don't have the experience to know that there's a smarter way of doing what I'm watching them do. And what they're doing makes sense to me. It So also with, with I mean, if you want to, Senate strategy is, an, is possibly even more an inside game than uh, presidential campaigning and has incredible... Uh, weights on it that are not comprehended in the outside world. And so what I watched uh, Chuck Schumer do, uh, I thought was pretty smart all the way through the process. In fact, I might have, I mean, you never know, as you know, David, you never know unless you're in that room. And you've been in that room. You've been in the majority leader's office Mm -hmm. where you're sitting there trying to strategize the next move. And you know the reason you're in that room is there is no good choice. They wouldn't need you in that room if there was a good choice, okay? So here are our two bad choices. One is, you know, allow a, a shutdown to occur. The other is, what if we just drop our 60-vote threshold and see if they can pass this um, on their own? And I got to say, I might have leaned toward that on Friday night of shutdown night yes. in order to avoid a shutdown because if they pass it, I get chip. And I'm not going to get chip any other way. Right. So I take chip and I run with it. In fact, what Schumer did was better than that because he said no. Um we're going to go all the way if we have to into shutdown. And what they got from shutdown was not just chip, but they got one week uh, cut off of this funding process that the Republicans were asking for. They moved it from February 16th to February 8th. And so they they kept the game going and they closed the calendar into a tighter spot. People now seem to believe that the minority in the Senate can actually legislate uh, because of the so-called 60-vote threshold rules. Mm -hmm. They can't. The only thing they're actually empowered to do is to block things. They, They can say no when it comes to a 60 vote threshold. They can, if, and, but to try to actually make, make something happen as opposed to just say no is, is next to impossible. And so they actually did make something happen. They got chip. Now they're going to try to get the other thing. They're going to try to get DACA. Uh, and that's going to be even harder to do. But I think it, the problem from a messaging standpoint was they defined the shutdown as being about DACA. Yes. And therefore... Oh, the messaging you know, was terrible. Yeah. The messaging was terrible. But Democrats will always f- fail by the media's scorecard at what they call messaging in a complex legislative environment. This is an extremely complex legislative I'll environment. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a situation where democratic messaging worked and was very clear and very simple. And that was the repeal yes. of the Affordable yes. Care Act. The, what was the democratic message in the repeal of the Affordable Care Act? No. Right. That's it. That's the entire message. Yeah. N-O. That's the whole message. Right. And a lot of them said more words. But that was all it was. And so that's what I call, that is not a complex legislative environment. All you are is no. That's right, all you right, are. Right. So, um, so trying to stop something is not a complex exercise. It's the word no. And we've seen Republicans do that when they're in the minority. We see Democrats do it when they're in the minority. When you're in the minority and what you're saying is, I, wanna, I, we're, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do this instead and you actually get that across the finish line, there's virtually no models for that. You, you took a, after 95, after 1994, Democrats took a pasting, uh, lost control. Uh, you left in 95. Yeah, in uh, 95, yeah. Uh, presumably because it wasn't a very inviting place to be. Yeah, and, and <clears throat> there was that, but there was this much more important reason. And it was a reason that I had never previous believed, previously believed until I used it myself. And that was for family reasons. <laughs> and um, I, Whenever I saw someone was leaving political office or leaving Washington or leaving in some way for family reasons, I just assumed there's some horrible disaster going on. And uh, my daughter was then a year old. She was born uh, June 11th of 1994, right in the thick of when we were trying to legislate Hillary Clinton's health care bill. Uh, and so uh, she was about 18 months old when I... Uh, finally 
left. And it was really for that. It was really because I could. And your then wife and your child were living in, in L.A.? In, in New York and L.A. Yeah, and so your, your ex-wife uh, was yeah, a act, is right, an actress. Right. And so uh, it just became impossible uh, for me. You know, I, I uh, think luckily my daughter was very conveniently born uh, on a Saturday afternoon in New York City. And on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., I had to be in the Oval Office, and I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Listen, so I understand this. I, yeah. I, I, my early career in politics came really at the expense of of my family, and it's something that I'll. I, I am ashamed of it to this day at the sacrifices that I asked of them uh, during that period. So I'm very sympathetic to that. So at the end of the 90s comes along this opportunity, the West Wing. And you became totally enmeshed in that as a writer, mm-hmm. as a producer. Uh, did you direct at all? Or? I did not direct. If we had gone another year, I would have directed. Mm-hmm. Um, I did one acting turn in the West Wing. Uh, yeah, that was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. And it was all luck. You know, people think, especially a lot of people in show business think that these things are earned. Um, Aaron Sorkin wrote this great pilot for NBC, the best pilot I think that's ever been written for NBC, and NBC they called the West Wing, and NBC rejected it. They weren't going to make it. Uh, I read it when right after he turned it into NBC because my agent heard about it and sent it to me and said, wow, if they order episodes on this, they're going to have to hire you. So I read it, and I thought it was great. A year later, a year later, NBC made that pilot only because one of the executive producers involved had the muscle to force them to make the pilot. John Wells, who was running ER, their mm-hmm. most important show, a Chicago-based drama, yes, um, he forced them to to greenlight the West Wing pilot. Uh, and so then they went to episodes, and I was the first person to call uh, as a writer for that show, because I was the only member of the Writers Guild who'd ever worked in Washington at the time. Now there's a bunch, but I kind of paved the way, I guess. And uh, and I met with Aaron, and he just knew right away, you know, he's going to need me in the room. And so that was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. And, and, and we were also lucky then that we were on NBC, because if we had been picked up by CBS or ABC, we would have been going against ER, or against Law and Order, and we would have been crushed. Yeah, you we would, have been, we would have been crushed in five episodes and off the air. You know, uh, students here at the Institute of Politics still occasionally have West Wing nights where they watch oh, ep- episodes of the West Can Wing. Can I come? I'd love to. You, they love would love. They would love, love to that. hear from you. Yeah. You have a standing invitation. Yeah. Uh, but what strikes me, you know, and I love the show, but uh, what strikes me is how fundamentally idealistic it was. It was. You know, uh, I mean, let's leave aside the fact that nobody is as impossibly smart and witty as everybody was in that show. But I've heard David Axelrod is. I don't well, know. I mean, you know, <laughs> modesty forbid. But, but, uh, but uh, it did leave you with a sense of of government as a tool to to do good things and good people wrestling with tough issues and so on. It is what I believe. It is what mm-hmm. I've seen. But uh, it seems incredibly quaint in these times that we live, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, yes. And it was, it was as idealistic uh, as it felt because that was Aaron Sorkin's vision. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't mine. And so, you know, when you assemble a writing staff for a TV series like that, uh, there are a lot of different views about how to do things. And within any given episode, sometimes there's two or three menu items and you, you know, you debate them, you argue over them and you lose arguments. And so you go, oh, I wish we'd done the other thing. And so uh, a lot of us can have those kinds of thoughts about it. Um, And so I differed from Aaron and from most people there on this, on the idealism that the show was emanating i wanted to make it more realistic i always wanted to make it more realistic but it was aaron's show and i was working in service to the author and he had the uh uh you know the authorial view of the way this should be so one of the little things that i did in my episodes that that i'm very very proud of that west wing scholars can detect if they look closely enough is that whenever one of our people did the right thing. It was always as a last resort. 
I always made them consider <laughs> the cheap way out first, you know, consider, can we lie about this? Can we get away? And, and then they would end up doing the right thing. <clears throat> and in the end, that's what the audience feels. And so they still get that idealistic feeling uh, from my episodes uh, that I wrote. But, uh, but I, I wanted to see more of the... Uh, more the interpersonal tension of the job. I wanted to see people elbowing each other to get FaceTime with the president instead of just walking in like it was a clubhouse and they were mm -hmm. all buddies. I wanted to see, you know, Josh jealous of Toby or Toby jealous of CJ or that stuff that happens within any workplace right, that right. we all know happens. Well, and, and it's an intensely in high-pressure environments like a White House. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, but when I look at it, I believe that artistically the entire the whole piece works. And and I'm not sure that that my vision of it um, would have worked, actually, and uh, never mind been better. Actually, but what I want people to know is, yes, there was embellishment. Yes, there was romantic romanticizing and so on. Um, but in fact that when things work at their best, there are these moments in which you're proud to be a part of oh, that yeah. process. And I, I mean, I right. I feel that very, very strongly. Oh, and I do too. I, I mean, there's nothing I'm proud of, more proud of in my work life than working in government and working in, in the Senate. And so the thing that I think the show absolutely successfully did was give you the feel of this. And as far as I'm concerned, you can just imagine the interpersonal tensions mm -hmm. occurring off screen, you know, between the episodes or something. But the feel of what it was like to be rushing down, you know, that hallway on something important or making sure this message gets to so and so uh, and the the constant uh, seriousness of purpose of the work uh, is, is what I think the show conveyed and what I really wanted to convey. Because when you are in those jobs, there is never a moment where you ever have to doubt, am I doing something important? Mm -hmm. You know, which is, by the way, true of every nurse, every physician, uh, every emergency room, uh, you know, doctor in the country. There are jobs where you get to feel that constantly. Yeah. Most jobs you don't. Yeah. Most jobs you get to wonder, is this important? Does it even matter that I'm doing this? You know, yeah. uh, And if I didn't do it, someone else would just do it. And that right? was definitely, you guys conveyed that yeah. in, in a way that was really powerful. I want to I wanna just ask you one other thing about you and your career and the industry that you're in now and the business that you're in now. You and I both, you much more prominently than I, are involved in, in on cable television. Mm -hmm. um, and given the reverence that you just expressed for the system as flawed and as difficult as it is. How much do you think sort of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news and the kind of competition for eyeballs has contributed to uh, a kind of distortion of our political process? I think greatly. And uh, I... And I, I am not the person to rise in defense of the way modern media works across the board, uh, including uh, cable news. Uh, you were tough, by the way, on NBC for hiring Donald Trump during the apprentice years. So. Yeah, but let me just say that the, the way I yelled at NBC and NBC executives on TV. Yeah, uh, in, you're still there. In, in 2011. Uh, Did they know it, about that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and that no one said anything to me about yeah. it. That's like one of the, <laughs> that's one of the things that uh, I could be proudest of MSNBC for is that they let me sit there and just, you know, yell at these NBC entertainment executives in Burbank who were letting Trump get away with all this stuff about the president's birth certificate. And they were in a position to shut him down on that. Mm -hmm. They could have said to him, stop doing that. And they, by the way, they've done that to actors many, many times over the years, tell them to stop talking about that public issue they're talking about. On your book, uh, I think the best way to ask you to sum summarize is to ask you, uh, in that incredible drama of, of 1968 that you, you talked about earlier, who are the great characters? Who are the characters that really took you and, uh, and why, for better and worse? Well, the, my real loves uh, are some of the characters who I knew nothing about before I did the research, some of the characters who were not on TV, like Abigail McCarthy, Gene mm -hmm. McCarthy's wife, who's just 
a, a stunning character in this thing. The, the McCarthy campaign, which to me looked like a, a rocket of success, uh, you know, as a kid just watching it on TV, suddenly this guy goes up to New Hampshire and wins the New Hampshire primary. And it was literally decades later that I discovered he came in second in New Hampshire because yes. the, the coverage was all, you know, as if he won. But he came in such a strong second against the incumbent president that it was so stunning. It drove but, him out of the race. And it turns out he's... When you, when I dig into it and I look at what the so-called campaign was, it was a mess of amateurs and people who'd never done this before and didn't know what they were doing. And Abigail McCarthy, uh, Jean's wife, notices what's going on and just takes it upon herself at her house in Washington with other women in the neighborhood to do their own kind of organizing of, of this campaign. And there's a period where that is by far the most organized and effective <laughs> operating entity and, and McCarthy, McCarthy himself campaign. was a very quirky character oh quirky yeah. is the is the is it, 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 he's so deeply complex yeah. and so filled with earned and unearned resentments and and um uh, and, and, and a certain sense of superiority and then a certain uh, kind of jealousy and then in fact he actually is morally superior to other Democrats and other people in that crucial moment of making the decision of should I run for president and why should I run for president? And he is the one who says, uh, I'm going to run for president because we need to put the Vietnam War on the ballot. And it would not have been on the ballot if he did not run. Uh, his success in New Hampshire really tips Bobby Kennedy into running. And as I, I didn't know this then, but I, I didn't realize Bobby Kennedy had been thinking about running much longer than Gene McCarthy had. And he'd gone back and forth. He'd decided to do it. He decided against it. He'd gone. And, and I, so I thought Bobby Kennedy was just this guy who jumped in suddenly, you know, after McCarthy succeeded in a completely exploitive way. It turns out he was headed in that direction and sort of stutter stepping in that direction. Uh, and, you know, Bobby himself is uh, is even more fascinating than I thought he would be. And I came to understand him uh, much better, uh, especially when you set him in his time of the 1960s, because people like to talk about what happened to the ruthless, you know, uh, non-liberal Bobby Kennedy of the 1950s. Uh, how did we get to this liberal Bobby Kennedy of 1968? And in politics, it's always presumed that this is some kind of fake evolution of convenience. And when in fact, he was doing what the country was doing. There was no yeah. one in, in the Democratic Party who had the same thoughts in 1968 as they had in 1960. Right. There were segregationists in 1960 who were not segregationists any longer in 1968. I mean, giant worlds of well, thought and of his, were being Well, his overthrown. transformation was also spurned by an incredible tragedy yes. for which he blamed himself. Yes. Uh, yeah, his brother's and, the, and there's a moment uh, in this book when uh, uh, Jackie Kennedy, who was supportive of Bobby running for president, once he decided to do it, uh, she turned to a friend and said, you know what's going to happen to Bobby? And she said the same thing that happened to Jack. Uh, mm -hmm. And she was right. And I, I, I didn't know that. That's the, those, those players who are just off stage in, in this drama uh, are the ones that in many ways uh, interest me the most. They, they um, because the, the people on stage wouldn't be there without them. And, and it may be my perspective, since I had that perspective on people in the real world of politics, um, you know, I can't, the world gets to think about Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great man, the great scholar, the great statesman, the ambassador, the United Nations ambassador, the Harvard professor. I can't think of uh, Pat Moynihan without thinking about Liz Moynihan. And I know he would be none of those things, would not have one of those job titles were it not for Liz Moynihan, were mm -hmm. it not for his wife. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I widen the frame of the camera to include what people think of uh, as the so-called supporting cast. But in politics, I think, I think you know, David, in politics, they, they really... They don't live and operate as individuals. It, it is, when's the last time we saw uh, a single man or woman uh, advance 
uh, in elective office to great heights. Uh, It's not just for convention uh, that they have spouses. It's it's not what it's about. It's that it's to do this requires uh, a kind of heat shield and a kind of support system and without question. Yeah. And a kind of uh, family relationship and, and incredibly intense and truly intimate, uh, friendship support systems. Would you say that about Richard Nixon? Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, and and including uh, and, and by the way, it, it can extend beyond uh, just wives. You know, I'm not talking about just wives. Um, you know, uh, Roger Ailes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it comes into Richard Nixon's life uh, for the 1968 campaign. I don't know. I don't believe that Richard Nixon would have been elected president without Roger Ailes. When you win a presidential race by less than one percent of the vote. And you win it only when the Illinois votes are counted. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, all we have to do is change one little thing, and you're not president. And what Roger Ailes did in in what he helped invent about the Nixon television marketing strategy of Nixon, uh, the way they figured out how to take this guy who gets really stiff on TV and make him look accessible and human through these fake town halls that they filmed and then packaged into TV commercials as if they were real town halls, him interacting with people. Uh, that really made an incredible right. difference. For Roger Ailes met him when he was a producer on the Mike Douglas show. So yeah. he brought those skills. Uh, but yeah, so in that sense, history was changed as well because another career was launched, which was Ailes, who clearly had a... And who a, ended up being ultimately the most influential figure in this entire book. I mean, what... What influence did LBJ have on presidential outcomes after he decided not to run for president? Virtually none. Okay, not, no one was talking about LBJ in 1972. Roger Ailes helps get Nixon elected in 68, helps him getting reelected in 72, goes on to helping Reagan get elected in 1980, get, helps him get reelected, helps George, George H. W. H. W. Bush, Bush. And then, and then, helps George W. Bush get elected by running a television network in full support of him 24 hours a day. That network's still going, by yes. the way, and is the most consequential sort of pipeline to Republican yes. voters in a really astonishing way. We got to go, but I have to ask you this. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't. In 2014, you suffered a really... Uh, dramatic, through a really dramatic ordeal. You were in a car accident in the British Virgin Islands. You and your brother were on vacation. Could very nearly, could could very, uh, uh, you almost lost your life. I mean, you broke your hip and he was badly injured. What, what, how did that change you? And how do you look at life now as compared to um, before that accident? You know, what I get to say, because I have no enduring pain from it, is that it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. It stopped my life completely. It it gave me what felt like, you know, a couple of minutes, but was really probably only a couple of seconds or fractions of a second to think about the end of my life because it felt like we were going to die in this crash as I was seeing it happen. Uh, and I felt that, uh, that... Uh, that thing of it, it it's over and i thought about my daughter and and then when i when when it all ended and all the noise and the and the bangings of of the cars ended and i was not dead i was so happy to be alive and happy to be alive is one of our oldest clichés it's one of those things that we throw around happy to be alive and you know um to to understand what that really means and to feel it is a gift and 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 i am way too thick to ever have understood the meaning of that and 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 ever been able to walk around with that gift without actually having my life really seriously threatened and me seeing it coming seeing death coming right at me seeing that thing happen and so uh that lucky to be alive thing uh is, is is it just changes everything it changes everything about the way you go through your day it changes what you complain about it changes I mean, meaning you there's 
basically nothing you complain about after that. Uh, it also introduced me for the first time in my life to these heroes that are all over our world uh, and in places like Chicago you'll see them you know on the train going to work and they're in athletic shoes and they've got backpacks and that might look like somebody who's going to do a you know a delivery job for for some company and that's a nurse who today is going to save a life uh, or tonight is going to have to go home with the burden of having watched people die who she tried to save uh, Doctors who uh, are every day doing the most important things we could possibly ask of them to do in, in putting us back together, uh, in, in saving lives, in, and, and, getting, and somehow getting through their own lives with the weight of all of this on them. I, I mean, we look for, we always kind of want inspirational stories around us. And what I never realized, I never realized this. Uh, because the medical community to me was something I checked in with very rarely uh, mm -hmm. for any, I can't remember the last time I'd been to a doctor before I needed emergency surgery. And I, I just wasn't, I just wasn't aware of what they do even, you know, and, and, I, and then I realized, you know, every time I ever talked to somebody who came out of a hospital experience, they, they were all raving about their nurses and yeah. they're all and 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 i and i never paid attention to it i never really connected to it um I, you know when i had to uh say goodbye to my nurses at the end of many 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 weeks um of recovery uh it was a tearful experience yeah. it was uh you know there and so that's a gift that, that i know that these people are out there that these heroes are out there that this is the country we live in and that you know whenever you're seeing these things happen in our world and our in our country and our politics that you hate you see something happen in washington tomorrow that you absolutely despise i promise you just within walking distance of wherever that happened uh there are doctors and nurses doing heroic and noble things that we're not talking about and that that if we did if we could possibly give them the attention they deserve uh you know they would make us feel much better uh than anything else that happens in our news uh, all i can say is amen lawrence o'donnell so good to be with you so happy you came here to the university of chicago institute of politics uh, looking forward to put uh, me on your desperately available list. I will come. <laughs> I will come anytime. Well, you're you're there, brother. You're there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.